Hey, I'm Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Please come and check out this exciting episode we have for you. Hey, and welcome to the Armed and Ready podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. Today, we have returning guest, one of our favorites, Marty from the Black Rifle Coffee Company. Marty, what's up, man? Thanks for being on the show again. Hey, thanks for having me on. So what's happening in your world, man? I know coffee is a lot of your world and branding, marketing, online stuff, real estate. So um, what's, what's happening? What's new? What's going on that you're seeing you know, in your world? I run Coffee or Die magazine for Black Rifle Coffee, and uh, we are just undergoing a, a, you know, the final throes of a pretty massive expansion. Uh, the entire company is expanding quite a bit, um, but Coffee or Die magazine specifically We've gone from about uh, 12 full-time staffers to about 20 just in the past couple of months. So a pretty big uh, job of integrating the team in and then, you know, a lot of moving parts because we've got a lot of people out on assignment um, around the country, around the world. Um, One of our uh, editors, Nolan Peterson, actually just returned from the front lines between Ukraine and Russia. And uh, so we've been staying pretty busy, uh, you know, running that. And um, yeah, and I'm in the you know, final stages of uh, my next book. So pretty excited about that. That's cool. And then, you know, for our guests who maybe aren't familiar with who Black Rifle Coffee is, um, it, it's a veteran-owned coffee company, um, you know, for to keep it short. I'm sure almost all of our listeners are, are familiar with the brand at this point because um, it's a pretty pretty prominent name in, in the veteran space, in the military space. I actually just saw and maybe you guys have been doing it for a while, but I saw the first like TV commercial not too long ago, um, which I was like, mm-hmm. hey, that's pretty cool. Um, but you guys do a lot on, um, on the social media space and, and online and stuff. And I know that you, you have a heavy amount of influence in that too with you know, the, your, your books and the magazine and things that you're doing. So I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about branding and marketing. And I mean, you guys have become really, really proficient at what you do for your online presence and, and the eyes that you're attracting and stuff like that. So if you could walk us through maybe some tips or some insight that um, are maybe, maybe areas of focus that you have, you know, if you're creating a post or, you know, trying to in, engage with uh, more people and stuff, are, is there a particular tactic or strategy that you guys are, are trying to, to use? Yeah. I mean, I think the number one strategy is to have a strategy. Um, I think a lot of people approach social media as kind of an afterthought or, um, or even branding in general as almost like an afterthought of something. Oh, I know I need to do that. So I'll do it and then get on to what, whatever my main, you know, focus is. for, for us, it's, it's not an afterthought. It's a very deliberate thought out, uh, you know, planned strategy, um, that starts at almost, you know, if you're Evan Hafer or Matt Best, you're at like that policy level and then you know, you get down to strategy and then implementing the actual at the tactical level, which is making the actual post, right? So yeah. it goes through this entire um, process uh, that, yeah, is, um, are the top guys at the company necessarily approving every single social media post? Not necessarily, but probably more often than a lot of people would realize at this point with all the different platforms we're active on. Um, and, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a very deliberate strategy behind it. We talk about, you know, trends and um, how we can best interact with the audience. You know, we've got people that are dedicated to talking to people in the comments section are, you know, before a social media post is even made, it goes through multiple levels of vetting to make sure 
One, is this good for the company? Two, does it accomplish anything for the company? Three, um, is it good? Is it just like, is it a good, does it provide value to the people that are following us on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, LinkedIn or, or, you know, YouTube, uh, whatever it may be. So I think that there's, you know, I think that that's where we're a little bit different is I think a lot, a lot of other companies that I've interacted with or seen there that it's just like, Oh, hire like, you know, the 20 year old that needs like a summer job or an after school job that knows how to use the social medias and let them do their thing, you know, yeah. whereas for us, it's like, we're making, we're, we're, you know, not only are we putting a lot of effort into it, the hires that we make for those positions, for the people in that social media department, we're going out and finding people that like, Hey, what does their presence look like? Or what other work have they done? We're trying to find the best and brightest people in that space. Not just somebody that simply knows how to make a post or how to manipulate the platform. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like I've watched, um, kind of social media and its maturation in, in my industry, right. In the mortgage and in the real estate industry. And I know like a few years back, you know, different companies would do exactly what you're saying. Like they'd hire that, that 20 year old or that college intern, you know, because nobody even Mm -hmm. knew how to like make a post. Um, so it was like Mm -hmm. super foreign and now fast forward. And I think you're seeing like your space and my space, um, collectively, you're seeing those who are really thriving at it, that social media is like step one when it comes to marketing yep. and branding rather than step 19. And, mm-hmm. um, and I see, you know, some of my colleagues and peers in, in the mortgage industry who are really, really on top and their social media presence is a, a huge focus of theirs. Like it's very deliberate, as you're saying, like very deliberate, you know, they're, they're making sure the content is good. They're making sure like the hashtags are the right hashtags. You know, there's a lot of thought going into it. It's not just like, Hey, here's a picture of my lunch. Thanks everybody. You know, um, yeah. there, there's a lot more to it. And it's cool because, you know, it's, you know, that, that old business saying, you know, it's kind of like the belly to belly face to face, sit down and relationship while super important. I think we'd all agree on that social media mm-hmm. and in this, this branding and this presence gives you the opportunity rather than shaking one hand at a time to shake a thousand hands at a time, you know, and be seen. I, I think that like even the modern interpretation of that though is not just doing fire and forget posts where, Hey, you made, you, you made your post on uh, Instagram say, and then you're just completely absent in the comment section. If you, hopefully whatever post you're making is engendering some sort of um, response from your audience and they're commenting or, you know, and, and you're interacting with them. You're having that one-to-one. And I know specifically, um, you know, uh, if, especially if you're a bigger personality, people get really excited that, Oh, Hey, they responded to my comment, you know? Yeah. And, that is, you know, it, it's a thing. And so, yeah, you're not necessarily able to sit down across the physical table with people every often, but responding to DMs, being active in the comments section, um, you know, treating it like what it is, which is a community, um, that goes a long way towards building an audience and, and making sure people, they're more, much more likely to interact with your posts if they know that there's a chance that you're going to respond to them. And the more people that are interacting with your posts, that impacts how much Instagram or Facebook or whatever is going to show that post to your, your overall followership or, you know, like it's, it's, it's a, it all feeds into each other. Yeah. And they have, they have their own algorithms. I'm sure they vary from media site to media site, but yeah, like you were mentioning that, that engagement, the interaction. And now I think you look at like, um, like Instagram with their reels, like they're, you know, when, when these social media companies come out with like a new feature, they want you using it right away, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I'll admit, I mean, I mean, I've been slow. To, I haven't even adapted and done a reel yet, but I know that that's, that's where I need to be because I've seen, 
you know, my views and my engagement be suppressed. They're, they're way lower than they used to be. And I know it's cause I'm not playing their game. Right. And, yep. and so you have to be able to like recognize that stuff and adapt to it. Um, I think in order to, to still be relevant. Right. You know, there's a couple of kind of case studies in that, uh, you know, back when Facebook launched their, you know, ability to upload videos, they started weighting videos very heavily. Like your, a, a video post would reach far more people than just a regular text or photo post. Right. Um, and you, you would see just these astronomical view, view count numbers on video. Well, now that that's been in place for a while and that's well-established, you're not gonna, they, they, they kind of reeled that, uh, that reach back in. Um, YouTube, when they started to wait uh, watch time over uh, view count, uh, as far as showing them, you saw a big transition from like, oh, okay, I can't post just a one or two minute video every single time. I need to have like 10, 15, 20 minutes to get that watch time up. And, um, and again, like YouTube rewarded people that put out longer form content, you know? And I think that's, you know, part of that goes into like the whole strategy, right? And how you're pushing everything is knowing that each platform is different and they want different things. And what works on, um, what works on one platform doesn't necessarily work on the other. Um, and, you know, I think you see that a lot of people, they'll sign up for like one of these like shotgun blast type services that, hey, put your post in here and we'll shoot it out to all of the different social media platforms. Yeah. And it's like, man, you can always tell when people do that. And it just immediately like it kills engagement because people see that and they're like, oh, you put zero effort into this. I am going to reward that with zero effort on my part. You know, like you're not going to get my view or my click or or whatever. Yeah. And also it's probably going to impact how I see your company or service or product or or whatever. If you know, if you're not putting effort into this, how much effort are you putting into uh, you know, the main um, you know, the main product of your business? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> and do you guys have like in your marketing group, and I know that you know all these these different sites, YouTube and Instagram and LinkedIn, all the stuff have kind of their their different approaches and their different strategies, right? Do you guys have people in-house that are like, hey, this this person's like the expert at YouTube. This one's like the Instagram guru. Or is it kind of a collective effort? Do you guys have it broken down any sort of way? Uh, no, you know, the, the social media team, they're all familiar with, I think it's just, there's an expectation that everybody be familiar with those differences and those nuances. There's certainly like influencers that we, that are specifically for, we know have a presence on Instagram or have a presence on YouTube that we leverage. But as far as like our actual staff, you know, they're all pretty much expected to know the ins and outs of every platform, you know, um, rather than being siphoned off into one thing or another. Now, certainly like our YouTube presence, um, isn't even like, that's, that's pretty much where we publish all of our video. And that's like a whole other side of like, YouTube is more than just a social media platform for us. That's like our entire, you know, where we, uh, publish, it's more of a publishing platform than it is a social media platform, you know, like we use yeah. it in a slightly different way than we do say Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, you know, a lot more effort goes into that. We put a lot of time and resources into the videos that, that eventually make it up on our YouTube channels. Um, whereas there's a little bit more, not that no effort goes into Instagram or Twitter, like I said before, it's a very deliberate process, but certainly it's not as intensive and we're posting more regularly. Whereas we might get one or two videos up a week on YouTube. We're putting up a posting at least once a day on all of the other social media platforms. Or if you're talking about Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, I know specifically for Coffee or Die, you know, we're putting out between six and 10 stories a day. So we're getting between six and 10 posts a day on everything except for Instagram. Wow. That's a lot. <clears throat> that's really good. Tell us a little bit about yeah, the magazine. Busy. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the magazine a little bit. I'm, I'm curious to know 
you know, what, what direction you guys are, are taking the magazine and is it actually a printed magazine or is it all online now? Uh, it will be in July. We're launching the first print issue in on uh, July 1st. Cool. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, and uh, but yeah, for the past three years that we've had it up and running, it's been all online. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the main focus of it is, you know, we're telling stories about and reporting on news uh, that is either about or impacts the military veterans, first responders, and then obviously coffee. So um, we've got a couple of different verticals there that we fall into and uh, writers and editors that are assigned to each vertical and, and kind of keep those up and running. And um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. We've, you know, we really pride ourselves on doing journalism that is in the vein of Ernie Pyle. We're, you know, we're getting out there and we're embedding with the troops. We're getting out on the ground. So, um, you know, like when we first launched it, I, you know, went out and embedded with a special forces ODA in Afghanistan. That was like our first big story we used to launch the magazine. And both me as well as the rest of the team have continued that tradition of like, hey, we're going to get out there. We're not going to just report from our basement or our, or our dining room, right? We're going to go out there and, and actually put uh, boots on the ground, so to speak, and uh, get the real story, get photos, get video. And, uh, you know, and sometimes at great risk to our own personal well-being, like I said, we just had one editor out on the front lines, you know, with an earshot of artillery, uh, of Russian artillery last week. Um, we've got a couple of writers who are still you know, trying to wash the CS gas out of their clothes from covering all the civil unrest in the past year. And um, yeah, we've got people that go to combat zones. We've got, um, you know, just really exceptional group of people that are doing a lot of really great reporting and storytelling. I love that because, you know, as we watch the mainstream media, it's become, things become so much of like a show, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's almost, it's less about like the journalism and the reporting of what is actually happening. And it's like, hey, how can we manipulate story A to get us ratings, right? And, and, um, so I love that you guys are doing that because there's, there's a lot of truth out there that isn't being shared. Um, yeah. and unfortunately there's too many eyes on that, but you know, hopefully we can get, you know, some additional eyes on what you guys are doing. Cause I think it's really cool. Kind of the advice I give people is you watch entertainment and you read the news. Um, and that's really like, yes. Um, you know, there, there's actual news that comes across your TV station, but for the most part, they are engineering what they show and what they're covering. And, the type of hosts that they have on there around an entertainment objective, right? Yeah. Whereas uh, people that are writing the news tend to be a lot more fact-based. It's And for a lot of news publications, ours included, it's going through layers of copy editing and fact-checking stuff. It's not just what one individual spouts off on while they're on live TV at any given moment, right? So there's a lot of different layers of filters that that goes through. And not that print journalists don't ever get stuff wrong. Of course they do. But um I just, I recommend people like if you really want uh, to get news and to be informed and to know what's going on in the world, uh, you know, I, you know, behoove you, you know, read from a couple of different outlets, compare and contrast the coverage. You're going to be much more well-informed than if you're just watching one of the cable news outlets. Um, yeah. You know, you may be entertained with them, but that's, you know, it depends what your goals are. You know? Right. Yeah. It depends on your goals. And I, I, I notice even like sometimes the local, local news, a lot of it is just, is very opinion leveraged mm -hmm. right it's it's someone's opinion of whatever's going on but it's it's rarely like hey here's what's actually happening in you know afghanistan today or, or wherever around the world right it's just like hey what can we yeah. what can we manipulate and, and just have an opinion on and just stir up a bunch of emotion pretty well known at this point that if you you know say something controversial or pander to one um you know point of view or another that your viewership will go up and all of the you know yeah, from local uh, news channels all the way up to the big, you know, 
Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, they all kind of know, hey, if we are controversial or pander to one side or the other, that, you know, our ratings will stay up. And, you know, it's, it's true. Oh. It, it works. It's a proven formula. Yeah. No, Not I, great for society, though, in my opinion. I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, they, they've proven it works, but yeah, it's, it's not good for all of us. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me, um, tell me a little bit about um, coffee and, and what's happening. You know, is the coffee industry growing? Is it shrinking? Um, where's that whole thing headed? I mean, I know like, you know, if you look back, you know, when, when Starbucks really like got big and like, there was just this, this craze for coffee. Right. And it's, I think it's been pretty well sustained. Like I think coffee is like a pretty big, like mainstream thing nowadays. Um, Mm -hmm. so are you guys seeing any, any trends as far as like the business is concerned as you know, is, is it getting more competitive or are there less people trying to jump into it? Cause I remember at one point in time when Starbucks was hitting big, everyone was trying to open up their own little coffee stand and, and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Right. Cause they saw this excitement around it. Um, What's what are you guys seeing right now in that industry? You know, there's more people drinking coffee, and more people are drinking more coffee um, than they did before. You know, it's uh, whereas a lot of people would have that cup in the morning and go on their day. There's a lot of people are drinking two, three, four, or five cups of coffee a day at this point, and and it's becoming. There's a lot of parts of the world that were traditionally like tea drinking companies that are now starting to drink coffee. They're they're leaving tea behind and drinking more coffee. So. <laughs> It is absolutely an expanding um, uh, market for coffee. It's an expanding industry. Um, there's always competition. Uh, you know, one of the big things that's impacting the coffee industry right now is the ability to move product as well as the price, like commodity coffee beans. Uh, the prices aren't sustainable for a lot of farmers. So you got a lot of farmers in coffee producing countries that are saying, screw this, I'm gonna go grow, I'm gonna go grow pecans or avocados or, you know, uh, some sort of other cash crop, right? Um, because, of uh, you know, the way the price has been driven down on coffee beans, but, um, you know, there's a lot of reporting out there right now that the, because of some of the issues around, um, you know, farmers leaving the coffee industry, that's going to result in the prices going back up and everybody's going to be paying more for a cup of coffee. So in some cases, probably dramatically more because, uh, it's, you know, just simple supply and demand, right? Like yeah. if the supply drops off and the demand is continuing to grow, like, that price is going to go up. So what you're paying for coffee today may be, um, you know, much different than what you'll pay two years from now, just depending on how this all goes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the perfect segue into, um, you know, talking supply and demand into, um, you know, my industry, which is, which is real estate. So I think, you know, we're, we're seeing that on a pretty extreme side right now in alluding to what is coming through your guys's industry too. But, you know, we're seeing, and it's nationwide. I mean, I lend in 20 States, you know, primarily all with military and veterans and stuff, you know, as people are PCSing and things. Um, but we're, we're seeing in every market, this crazy amount of demand and very low supply. I've got one friend who is uh, looking for a house right now and his real estate agent told him like, look, you know, he's got, you know, he's going to use a VA loan. They're like, look, um, you're not going to have much luck with the VA loan right now because of the fact that to be competitive in the market in this particular area that he's moving to, it's all cash offers, no, uh, uh, no contingencies yeah. and like, they, like not even waiting for, you know, the basic home inspection that a VA loan requires. I mean, that's how competitive it, it is right now. And on top of that, people are coming in 50, 60, $70,000 over asking. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's crazy, you know, and, and you don't even have that many houses to choose from. Cause you said the supply is just, 
you know, it kind of seems like everybody that has thought about selling in the past year has already put it out on the market, made their money and everybody else that's got a house is kind of happy where they're at. You know, I, I don't know. It's what are you seeing? I've been fortunate with a lot of our, our VA loan clients that, you know, I, I get together with their agent and go through a pretty good strategy session. So yeah, we're not winning on the first at bat necessarily, but we're having a pretty high success rate because we come in with an actual strategy to get that that home and that offer <laughs> accepted. And and like you mentioned, there's a lot of markets out there where, um, you know, the VA loan is not looked at as highly. And that's really where, you know, the advantage comes into like who your team is, right? And really trying to get yeah. that over the finish line, you know, at least get it accepted. And there's a lot of different strategies depending on the market and, and the people involved <clears throat> and, and the client's, you know, stomach for it as well on what we can do. But we're seeing a lot of offers go above the list price. But I'll be honest, depending on how much over they're going, um, I'm not seeing appraisals being too much of an issue. Um, and I think, you know, when this craze initially started, we were seeing a lot of appraisal problems, right? Because the appraisers are coming in going, mm -hmm. hey, there's no comps to support you paying 50 grand over the asking price. So sorry, the appraisal's coming in 50 grand short. And in those scenarios, you know, now the buyers and the seller got to figure out a way to make this work. And, um, yeah. oftentimes it's the buyer just forking out an extra 50 grand. Sometimes they meet in the middle and I've seen different things happen, but now that we've been having this situation for some time now, I mean, it's been about a yeah. year now yeah. we're, we're seeing sales that are supporting X percent over the asking price in a, in yeah. a given neighborhood or something. So the market has gone up like the actual, it's not like somebody is overpaying for a house. That's just how much that house is worth now with the current supply, uh, like yeah. the, the market has adjusted. Totally. It, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you look at like Austin, Texas is probably one of the most wild markets right now. A lot of that because you have, you know, the California Bay area, like the tech companies are moving there and, you mm -hmm. know, you, home price comparisons, you know, in the Bay area, I mean, you can get a postage stamp of a studio for under a million, right? So if you had a home with any space at all, you're, you know, you're well into the millions for what that house cost. And if you have been living there a few years with this whole supply and demand thing, you got a bunch of equity. So these guys are, are all relocating to the Austin area where comparatively homes are cheap compared to what you would, you know, buy in the San Francisco Bay area. And they're going in there and they're just throwing down big bucks. Like, yeah, we'll give you 150,000 yeah. over asking price. And you know, what seller is going to say no to that, you know, yep. extra six figures. Okay. Um, and it's made yep. that market just go hog wild. It's it's incredible. Um, and I'd say it's probably one of the most crazy markets um, out there right now. But all of them are super competitive. I mean, I have some clients where it's like, you know, offer 14 is the one that finally gets accepted. When you look at like the actual fundamentals that are underlying the increase in prices, I think it, yeah, it's, I think that this will flatten out eventually. But I don't think we're going to see a sharp drop coming off of this. I think that there's just, it's going to take time for builders to come in and build more houses. I think a lot of people value, you know, moving out into the suburbs again. Whereas before we saw this mass exodus from rural areas and the suburbs into the city. Yeah. Now we're seeing the reverse happen. And I think it's going to take a while for builders and, and you know, just the, the overall market to catch up to that. So I think the prices actually stay this high. Like if you're one of those people that's like, oh, I'm going to wait a year and because prices seem too high right now. I don't think it's going to get any better. Is, is that is that you, kind of your assessment or are you seeing something a little bit different? I would agree with you. I think we might see in about two years, I think we might see a slight dip, a, a couple percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a crash. And I don't think this is a bubble, same yeah. as you. 
um, we might see a little bit of a pullback and then kind of a flattening. Um, where yeah. right now, you know, this thing is pegged at such a, a high angle with appreciation and demand <laughs> yeah. so high. And a lot of that, you know, I think it's fueled by, by two things. Um, I think the number one thing that's fueling that is the super low interest rates that we've had for mm -hmm. a year now, right? People are very accustomed to these crazy low interest rates, which has afforded people the ability to buy more home. And it's also changed like that mentality of, oh shoot, money's cheap. I better get some. And, um, mm -hmm. and then you couple that with, you know, we've gone through this, this COVID situation and so much, you know, of work has becoming, been happening through, you know, Zoom or Microsoft Teams. And now companies were, by force are now realizing that they can operate with some people remote. Not everyone has to be in the downtown office, you know, and, yeah. and not everyone has to be traveling to every single sales meeting. And so now that the companies are experiencing that, they're, they're okay with people moving away from that downtown hub and they can go live in the rural areas, have a nice big home and have like a really nice big private office that they work from at home and stuff like that and, mm -hmm. and still not lose any productivity. And so I think- I'd, I'd argue in some cases, productivity goes up. Uh, that's, that's a conversation in a lot of places where they're like, man, I actually get more done at home without the distractions of coworkers and the water cooler talk and Certainly you worry about impacts on like camaraderie and overall, you know, that team mentality. Certainly you worry about that. Yeah. But as far as like pure productivity goes, I think a lot of people are, or a lot of places are finding out that like, wow, my, my folks are getting more done by being at home. Yeah. I think a lot of them are realizing that. And um, so it's the combination of those two things has really pushed that demand up. And then you have obviously the home builders, right? And the home mm -hmm. builders, that's what creates our supply or, you know, people selling their homes. I think, you know, in a lot of like the major metropolitan, you know, especially coastal areas, right? You know, the California coast and the East yep. coast, you know, a lot of those big metro areas, it's really hard for builders to get to the point where they're actually like hammering two by fours together. You know I mean? Uh, I know like in my area down in the San Diego area, I've talked to some of the builders and, you know, they'll file plans and go through that whole planning process and permitting process. And it can be a year and a half to three years before they're actually like moving a piece of dirt. Um, which yeah. is a really, really long time to wait. And part of that is the local government and all the bureaucracy there. And, you know, you can compare it to some other states. Like Texas is pretty fast, right? So home builders can get going, you know, in like six months there. So it's a big difference. And that's probably why you're seeing so much movement to some of these states because there's inventory. There's actual homes yeah. you can buy. And it is helping that, uh, that price not go skyrocketing as quite as high as it is in areas where it's, you know, harder to build homes. So, um mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, back to your statement, I think we're going to maintain this higher level of home prices. And I think it will start to slow once interest rates start going up. Hopefully interest rates start to go up and, you know, hopefully, yeah, supply does start to creep back up again. And, you know, that I mean, even when you talk about supply, like just other commodities, you know, we talked about coffee commodities, but like lumber, yeah. it's another one where it's like, hey, it's it's expensive to build right now. It's not. And then you think about, hey the amount of people that are in these, like the trades, you know, there's only so many plumbers to go around right now. There's so only so many electricians. My wife's an interior designer. She, she competes for the trades that she gets right now. Cause there's not an abundance of them. So if you're looking to build a home, you're dealing with not only is there, you know, lumber is skyrocketing, if not, you know, not available in, uh, for certain periods of time or back ordered things like that, but also just the people that know how to build a house, yeah. you know? There's just not as many people that have gone into the trades in the past 20, 30 years. And so 
man, I imagine right now it's a very lucrative time to go pick up your electrician's license here or, or get into plumbing or carpentry. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people that are looking for people that know how to do that. So the, there's a labor shortage for sure. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and their cost is another supply and demand thing, right? So now you have this small pool of drywallers or plumbers or electricians. And because the demand on them is so high, the cost is higher to get them to do their mm -hmm. work, thus yeah. raising the price of the home. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's not just some, some bubble thing, right? There's a supply and yeah. demand component to all these little pieces. I mean, a lot of people point at 2008 and they just, you know, they don't understand like the, what, what manufactured that bubble in 2008 was just poor lending practices. Right. 100%. Like, whereas this, it's so hard to get a home loan right now. Like the, 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 the barrier to, you know, like you have to, you know, unless you're, you know, serve your country and have that VA loan, like you're having to come to the table with like 20% down or, you know, like there's a lot of hoops to jump through to be able to buy a home. That wasn't the case necessarily in 2008. So not only is it still somewhat difficult to get a mortgage uh, for the average, you know, middle American, the all the fundamentals behind why the prices are, are rising, it, like it all works out. It all makes sense why it is what it is right now. Whereas in 2008, it's like, uh, of course, there was a bubble coming because it just the there was just lunacy going on back then. Yeah. I mean, the prices are crazy right now. But back then it was like literally like... <laughs> You know, people went to jail over that. Probably not enough people, but some people went to jail over yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head, and yeah. I have this conversation with people a lot. Um, you know, the the lending there was there was no regulation around lending. You know, there's there's certain like banking regulations that the government has on like the big banks. You know, your Chases and your Wells Fargo's and things like that. And what happened back then is they loosened up some of the investment guidelines that the banks were allowed to do. So it was it was tighter on them before that era and that got loosened mm -hmm. up. So it allowed the banks to be more risky with investing like their savings and their deposits, right? So now they could invest them in more risky assets, which created this new investment vehicle called a mortgage-backed security. So now like traditional mortgage lending from many decades past was, hey, the bank brings in X amount in deposits and they lend out X amount of dollars, right? And you know, there's a, a bit of a limitation there. And when they had this ability to now sell these mortgages as a security on Wall Street, and now you got Wall Street money buying it and big investment banks and things like that, it created so much more money available. And then you couple that with like, well, you, you could go get a, a stated income loan. You know, you're making $9 an hour in reality, but your paperwork says you make hundred grand a year. And, you know, you're buying a house you can't afford. There was prepayment penalties on primary residences, which is outlawed now, and these subprime mortgages. I mean, anybody could get a mortgage back then. Anybody. Yep. And for little to zero down payment. West. Yeah, it was it was it was insane. Um, so yeah, I mean, contrast that to today. And fundamentally, it's so different because there's a lot of regulation now in mortgage financing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the number one thing, it requires you to prove you can repay the loan which seems, yeah. seems really common sensible. Crazy, right? Yeah. That's the biggest piece of it today. And, um, and then, you know, you got down payment and, you know, the credit requirements are stricter and stuff like that. So um, while, while we're still doing a lot of loan business, um, there is, you know, in comparison to like 2003, 2004, 2005, um, it's not just show up and you walk out with a, you know, half million dollar mortgage. Like you got to prove it. Yeah. You got to have your ducks in a row these days. And I think it, like, as far as like, staying on top of your, like that basic financial education that I think a lot of people 
you know, I, I wish we did a better job of that in our K through 12 education yeah. uh, of just people understanding like basic financial principles, because by the time, you, you know, you see a lot of that, like, you know, my generation, like millennials and, and the generation uh, below us complaining about like, oh, it's so hard to make money or it's so hard to buy a house or all of these things are out of reach. It's like, yeah, part of the reason you feel that way is because nobody ever like broke down how any of this worked to you. Like you're, you're completely dumb when it comes to financial anything that, yeah, of course, when you get to that point in life where you're thinking like, hey, I want to start having kids and, and uh, you know, become a homeowner, things like that. Like you're not in a position to do so. And you get this really hard slap of reality of like, oh, wow, you really needed to start planning for this, like essentially 10 years ago, or at least not made the mistakes that you made 10 years ago that are that you're still trying to work your way out of, Yeah, you know, now today when you're 28, 32, 35. You're absolutely correct. And I see it a lot, you know, with these, you know, young military members who have, you know, went straight from high school into the military and they've been in for a few years and now they want to buy a house and you take a look at, um, you know, their credit report. And it's unfortunate that a, the public schools didn't teach it. The military doesn't spend any time teaching it. So, you know, you have this, this generation that doesn't understand how to pay a bill, right? Cause mm-hmm. you know, as a kid and a teenager, your mom and dad are, are covering you, you know, w- yep. with some exception, you know, there's some kids who, you know, parents force them to get a job and pay for their own car payment. But, yep. um, you know, there's so many that don't have to do that. And, you know, that then they go enlist in the military and the military does everything for you, right? They want you to be a soldier, an airman, a sailor first, right? You know, civilian yep. last. And, um, which is great for the mission, right? You got to be mission ready. But, um, you know, they don't know how to balance a checkbook or necessarily how to pay bills on time, you know, without getting a $29 collection from AT&T, you know? Um, yeah. and don't understand the impacts of that and how it can affect them in the future. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. And we try to, you know, we're working on some things here and creating a foundation to where we can maybe bring that education, at least to the military folk, um, and just start yeah. getting kind of the, well, the basics, you know, once you start to learn these hard lessons, it's on you. Like if you're having kids, things like that, like start them young. Like one of the things that I wish I would have had growing up is, more of an edgy, you know, I wish my parents would have taken more of an active interest in that. And to be completely frank with you, I don't think that they knew a lot of, there's a lot of things that they learned the hard way, I think, you know, and, uh, you know, that resulted in a lot of mac and cheese growing up, I think, uh, <laughs> and, you know, for dinner. <laughs> um, but, you know, like for me and, and a lot of the friends that I talk to, it's like, you know, we're trying to take an active interest in teaching our kids the stuff that they need to know and, and not waiting until they're, hey, you're graduating high school next year, but starting young. So one thing that we started recently doing with my daughter, who's in first grade, um, you know, about to turn seven years old, like, okay, we did a chore chart. We assigned a value to each chore based on how much time it takes to do that chore and how difficult that chore is. So not every chore, it's not like a blank $10 a week or something like that. It's like each chore is assigned a value. And then if you do that chore, you know, we add it up at the end of the day. So she's not necessarily getting the same thing every week. And now we're taking that and I'm writing her a physical check. So she knows what a physical check, how that works. And then taking her down to the bank and she's depositing that in her account. And then uh, the plan is now that we're getting her used to this, the plan is within a year or two, okay, let's now take some of this money and open up a brokerage account. You know, and of course I'll have to like co-sign for her and stuff, but start putting money and teaching her about the, how, how the market works. And yeah. all that. like, if we start to do like, th- this isn't a big ask, like you can make a chore chart for your kids and pay them, whether that's $3 a week or $10 a week, you know, just start teaching them the value of money and how work equals money. And, you know, you know, just the basic exchange of services or, or goods for, you know, currency, like these are all in how a bank works, how a check works, 
you can get into the more complex stuff later, but you can start really young. Yeah. And I think the more we do that as a society, the more we're going to set that next generation up to hopefully have, you know, at least something in the bank when mom and dad need a wheelchair ramp built outside their house, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and just that, that practice, right. Of being able to save and invest. And, you know, I look at, you know, a lot of my peers in, in my, my business and, and just, you know, clients and stuff like that who are just not prepared for retirement. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're hoping that the automatic 401k deduction out of their check is going to be enough for them to survive one day and maybe social security. And the reality is, you know, if you go back to our earlier conversation with home prices going up and the cost of everything is it's going to continue to increase. Right. And so mm -hmm. the amount of money it's going to take to survive when you're not working anymore is going to be a bigger piece. And so, you know, teaching these fundamental lessons when they're really young is critical because you, you want your children, you know, by the time they're in a position where they're in their teens or their early 20s and they have like a job. It's maybe not the career job, but they have a job that they're, they're disciplined to that stuff. And, you know, and, and you probably understand, you know, the compounding of money. And, and as they're growing this, if they started when they were six years old, just putting a few dollars into a brokerage account, you know, by the time they hit retirement age, they'll have a few million dollars available yeah. to them from their own saving efforts on top of whatever else they've done, you know, real estate yep. and 401ks and things like that. I mean, you could literally just put, you know, your kid's allowance into an index fund and just let it sit there and just continue to, like, they're going to be very well off by the time they're looking at either buying a home themselves, or if they keep it further than that, like said, retirement or something like that, they're going to be very well off. Totally. Like that's, that's a great position to be in. Yeah. And it's, it's like almost no effort it takes to get them going on that. My oldest is four. And, um, so she's, she's starting to understand that things, there's a cost and go into work. And I don't know if she puts it all together yet, but, um, she's been hitting me up to help her put a lemonade stand out like the last couple weekends in a row. I want to make that's some awesome. money, dad, let's put a lemonade stand out. And yeah. I'm just like, yeah, that's great. You know, that like, yeah. there already is like that thirst for, you know, earning and, and understanding that. Yeah. And then, and like with that, it's like, you're getting into not just basic, like financial literacy, business ownership principles, and like that, that entrepreneurial spirit. That, that's so cool that she's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And I, and, um, it's rewarding too, as a parent. I mean, even though it's, you know, small potatoes, it's just, you know, really good lessons. Right. And they just continue to build on each other. And, um, and yeah, we, we gotta, we gotta work on what we can do to create a better financial health for not only our own children, but you know, all these generations, right? And just teach yeah, that stuff. 100%. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. How many kids do you have? Uh, two as of uh, about a month ago. Oh, uh, so congrats. we just, yeah, we've got another one keeping us busy, uh, making sure we don't sleep too much. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we've got, we've got two little girls now. Right on. Congrats, man. So the coffee consumption has probably increased a little, I would imagine. I'll be honest with you. I was already ticking along at a pretty high level. I don't <laughs> think, uh, I don't think I could safely drink more than I already do. Um, but one thing that I've done, I I've gone totally down like the, the ultra coffee, like hipster rabbit hole on like, I am, you know, really getting into like, you know, I've got my own hand grinder. I've got a nice kettle that has like a digital thermometer on it and a timer. And, you know, we use the Chemex pour over and like, what's the, you know, what's the weight of the filter. And I, I do the math on water to coffee ratio. So I really make this about as complicated as making a cup of coffee is going to get for somebody. And so I think that makes, helps me keep it under control a little bit because I'm also a very busy person. So I don't have time to go through that process. I think it keeps me honest. It's like, okay, I'm keeping it to probably three or four, like fairly large cups of coffee a day. 
whereas if it was as simple as a Keurig or like a Mr. Coffee, I'd probably be drinking like two or three pots a day, which I used to do when I was in the military. There was like no control. It was just, yeah, yeah, just completely out of control. In fact, yeah, in the middle, everywhere you go, there's coffee and you're just like, yes, um, exactly. So yeah, you're fancy, man. You're fancy with the coffee. Um, which is good, obviously that's, that's your business. So you should be, you should be fancy at it, (laughs) (laughs) but I I mean, I'm sure there's quite a difference in taste. Not that I've ventured down that path, but you'll have to share it with me. You know, I have one, a few people over that were like heavy, heavy on the cream, heavy on the sugar. And it's like, I don't even blame you if you do that. If you're drinking like crap coffee, like, yeah, you need to, you know, you need to spruce that, that cup of mud up a little bit if, if it's crap coffee, but I've had people like that come over and it's like, Hey, let me make you like a really good cup of coffee. Do me a favor, just trust me. Take a couple sips, sans, uh, sans milk, sans sugar, any of that sort of stuff, and just let me know what you think. I've converted a few people over to black coffee. By like they're like, yeah, if my coffee tastes like this, I don't need to put anything in it. So I've actually I've flipped a few people. I love it. That's awesome. Well, black coffee is supposed to be better for you anyways than adding all that junk, right? I mean, I think anything that you're not dumping sugar into is probably going to be better than dumping sugar into it, <laughs> uh, which is what some people do, yeah. you know? Well, Marty, I just want to say thanks, man. I love having you on the show, man. It's always so much fun to talk with you and um, just learn what you guys are up to. And, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of up there in the, in the military celebrity zone, um, you know, with, know with everything that. you guys are doing and, <laughs> and stuff. So it's, um, it's really an honor for me to, to be able to just, um, chat with you and stuff. And hopefully our, our audience, you know, loves listening to us as well too. And, um, you know, we thank you so much, man. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. Have a great one. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. If you have any questions about the guests on the show, please reach out to me at valoneguy.us.